Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So let's start tonight with a just sort of a small evidence-based factoid, uh, one that I am um, kind of a little bit of a uh, proselytizer about. Um, And so you may have heard and you may even still believe that MSG or monosodium glutamate can cause headaches, tiredness, other symptoms like that. Um, It has even been called at times, quote, Chinese restaurant disease, uh, because a lot of Chinese restaurants have traditionally used MSG in their cooking. And so the original research that suggested that this was a problem was published in the February 21st, 1969 issue of the journal Science. So for 50 years, people have believed that this is the case. The problem is, though, that follow-up studies have consistently failed to replicate the findings of that original study. There has been a lot written about uh, how that original study was not exactly the most... um, unbiased, shall we say. And so there was a lot, when you look back at that original uh, study, there's a lot that you can sort of look at with hindsight and say, "Mm, that's not so great, uh, what they were doing there. And so the thing is, is that there's pretty much no proof that MSG actually does anything to people other than make their food more yummy. And so there are some individuals who may have an actual allergy to MSG. Um, I've talked in real life to at least one of them who says, you know, I know that it's not this sort of thing, but it really does cause me real problems. And I've done enough of the sort of tasting things that have it and then not doing it that it does affect me. So I believe that people can have a real allergy to it. Um, But otherwise, it's actually a natural enzyme, uh, which creates the umami flavor, uh, which of course is that last uh, flavor sort of profile that we have come to know, uh, you know, sweet, salty, um, sour, bitter, and now umami. And who knows, there might be more (laughs) that we haven't yet come across. But basically, all it does is enhance food with little to no side effects for the average eater. Now, symptoms such as headaches or drowsiness can occur after eating three or more grams. However, the average person only consumes around 0.55 grams of added MSG in any day. So this is kind of like with sucralose where, um, not sucralose, with saccharin where it says, you know, may cause cancer um, p- because they basically took uh, a human equivalent amount of saccharin and gave it to a rat and lo and behold, the rat developed cancer. Well, yes, of course, if you give something, if you give an animal a huge dose of something, it can possibly very well lead to problems. 
Um, and so if you give someone a very big dose of MSG, it can affect them. But the amount in most people's food is very low. Despite all of this, a combination of both explicit and implicit bias has continued to suggest that food, especially from Chinese restaurants, which contains MSG, is potentially bad for you because of that MSG. So the next time you see something that has MSG in it, I'd suggest to not worry about it and just enjoy that delicious umami flavor. And especially to not buy into marketing ploys of products that tout a lack of MSG as a selling point, because of course, this is just another version of the phenomenon of marketing with scaremongering. And it's really, <laughs> it's really hard to get away from it these days. Um, I unfortunately end up having to buy things that have the uh, you know, non-GMO label, even though I really don't like doing it. Um, and sometimes I'll get surprised. I'll think, oh, this thing didn't have it. And then I'll find it. And it makes me very sad um, because I don't want to support that kind of fear mongering. But unfortunately, it is really hard these days to avoid it. But I do try at least myself to avoid it as much as possible. Okay. So let's move on now to a completely different subject, uh, but this is an update on the major fight between universities, academics, and publishers of academic journals. And so the University of California has announced, which it had already kind of uh, telegraphed that it was going to do this, um, but that they will indeed stop their subscriptions to journals published by uh, Elsevier. And of course, Elsevier is the world's largest scientific publisher. Uh, they're based in Amsterdam. And so at issue is both the high fees required by the publisher and their unwillingness to move forward with open access in a way that doesn't involve what institutions are calling double dipping, both charging an article processing fee to make it available open access, but then also charging a subscription fee for access to these art to these journals. Um, and so even though it's only one system with 10 schools, the UC system obviously is pretty big um, and has some big influence. It accounts for an almost 10% of all publishing output and is by far the largest institution to have taken up the call for ending this sort of price gouging uh, that has become really rather rampant in uh, scientific journal publishing. And so UC researchers published around 50,000 articles last year, with around 10,000 of those in journals published by Elsevier. According to the uh, Los Angeles Times, the UC system paid around $11 million in subscriptions and article fees. It's hard to overstate how big UC's move is for us here in the U.S., said Heather Joseph, executive director of the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition, which is a Washington, D.C.-based group that advocates for open access. This gives institutions that are on the fence about taking this kind of action a blueprint. And so another big reason for the push towards open access 
is the very real fact that much of the research done by researchers is taxpayer funded uh, through things like National Science Foundation grants, uh, you know, basically any research done at public institutions, a a large part of that is going to be from taxpayer funded resources. Um, You know, they do have partnerships with industry and things like that. But generally, a big chunk of it is coming from taxpayer funding. And so, you know, it's a hard sell to say that we have, we shouldn't have access to things that we've already paid for. And so that is a big issue. And um, so the publishers, of course, are trying to push back on this idea. Uh, And of course, like every, uh, you know, industry that is basically has enjoyed a really, really great profit margin and is really terrified of losing any of it at all. Um, We'll talk about, if we have time, uh, some recent interviews, uh, or I should say um, uh, interrogations of um, pharmacy CEOs in Congress if we get to it, but um, have much the same thing to say. The publishers say that this could basically drive them out of business because subscription fees provide a better per article revenue than the amount paid for having the ability to have the um, article then be open access. But again, I find that very difficult to believe. Uh, first off, given the fact that, well, access to these journals is essential for researchers around the world to vet and share their research. And so they have to survive. And so it will be able to, you know, we're not going to push them completely out of business. It's a really important uh you know, stable model in the sense of, and, you know, stable for certain values of stable, but, um, you know, having these published uh, journals is important. And so I don't think that anyone's trying to actually drive them out of business. They're just trying to rein in some of the outrageous fees that lead to kind of outrageous um, profit margins for these companies. And so um, it's interesting because this first one is about an American institution fighting with a European publisher. Now, this second uh, story is actually about a deal that's been made between a European uh, series of institutions and a American-based publisher, which is interesting, I thought. So meanwhile in Europe, uh, new details from Project Deal have been revealed. And of course, that is the uh, project that is working in Germany, um, which is really working very hard at getting uh, German papers to be open access. And so they have revealed new new data about a deal between uh, these German institutions and the New Jersey-based Wiley, which publishes more than 1,500 journals and is basically the other major player in the science publishing world. And so this deal is actually a true publish and read deal, uh, which is what UC has been trying to reach with um, Elsevier. 
And so the German institutions will pay 2,750 euros for each paper published, but this will then allow it to be open to the world free of charge. Now, there's several reasons why this was a little bit easier. Uh, the biggest one being that the Germans were willing to say that they will make this a uh, quote-unquote budget-neutral deal. Um, and so basically, they decided on what the per-paper uh, fee would be based on a kind of um, math that included the idea that they would pay roughly what they paid last year again to Wiley this year. And so they had a little bit more lean leeway there, whereas, you know, UC is really trying to say you have to stop charging us so much. Um, in this respect, it's more about we need these to be open access. And so it is a little bit of a different, uh, they're approaching the problem and the um, approaching it with different uh, kind of from different sides. And so the Germans weren't, in this case at least, uh, with Wiley, not so concerned about the monetary issue, but about the open access issue. Whereas um, with Elsevier, it's a little bit more about the money. <laughs> um, and the Germans are still fighting with Elsevier as well about the money. Um, and so Wiley is apparently a little bit more, uh, you know, willing to work with them. And so... It's basically um, a really, just a really great model, and it's going to end up with basically people having a lot more access to these papers being created by uh, members of the Project Deal, um, members of the universities and the institutions involved in that, and uh, some of those institutions will actually get better access now based on this deal than they had before. And so hopefully this will become the successful model for future publishing uh, in science journals and really in all journals, um, professional uh, journals, because all of this really should be open access. Um, you really should be able to read what is going on in scientific journals without having to be associated with a college or university, without having to pay a fee. It's just it makes sense um, that we should be able to open up a journal or go to their web page and read what people are doing in science. I think that's very important and in all fields, again. Um, and you may not understand all of it, but I mean, there's enough of it out there now that people read and don't understand. It hasn't uh, caused any kind of breakdown in society. So I don't see why making things more available would have any kind of real problem. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about a weird fossil uh, that people have been arguing about for over 150 years. So um, I meant to get to this last week, but I just ran out of time. So I definitely still wanted to talk about it because it is one of those just wonderful, weird stories that's, you know, very kind of uh, neutral when it comes to it's not going to make you upset. Uh, it might not make you like super excited, but um, I think it's just one of those like fun kind of cocktail party uh, facts to know about. And so uh, these fossils are called... Uh, styloforans. And until now, it was basically unclear just where exactly they fit on the tree of life. 
Uh, they're kind of one of those numerous weird and wonderful species uh, that lived in the sort of early days of uh, complex uh, life, uh, especially in the Cambrian. And basically in the Cambrian period, there's all these weird, crazy body plans and things. You know, it's often hard to tell if something is, uh, you know, animal, vegetable, or simply mineral. Um, and so, you know, or are they a combination? It's very, there's a lot of weird things that uh, came out of the Cambrian. And uh, I always recommend that people sort of look into uh, images of what have been found in the Cambrian because it's just so amazing how all these crazy weird life forms that uh, sort of came about and then were gone. Um, I think we talked about, or I, I know I read about, I can't remember if I talked about it. Uh, there was this other fossil recently that looked basically like a flattened leaf, but they think that it actually was an organism that ate. Um, so again, it's hard to tell. Was it a vegetable? Was it a mineral? Was it an animal? Who knows? Um, so these guys basically look like uh, flattened armored wall sconces um, with one large long arm poking off the side of their body. Now, it's long been known that they were sort of related to echidnoderms, um, but it turns out that they are actually true echidnoderms. So they're ancient members of a group that now includes sea urchins, starfish, brittle stars, sea cucumbers, and things like that. And of course, the question is, how do we suddenly know this? We've been arguing about it for 150 years. Well, it turns out that a beautifully preserved specimen has been found in Morocco. And what's important about this is that it is complete with fossilized impressions of the soft body parts. Now, this is, of course, a hugely, hugely rare find. Fossils are already a rare commodity, and to find one with preserved soft tissue is obviously extremely rare. That's why, despite many species having, or many specimens, I should say, having been discovered throughout the world over the last, again, 150 years, scientists have continued to debate its exact place in the history of evolution. And so the fossil was excavated in 2014 at the Fezua'ada uh, Formation, located on the edge of the Sahara Desert in southern Morocco. Now, this is a well-known spot for finding well-preserved fossils. And around 450 uh, Stylophora specimens dating to some 478 million years ago uh, were found during that excavation. And so, so many were found basically because these are actually quite small creatures. Uh, they average just over about an inch long. So we're not talking about, you know, big things. We're talking about little guys. And uh, so when they got back to the lab and started looking at these fossils, they found, quote, unequivocal evidence for exceptionally preserved soft parts, both in the appendage and in the body of styloforins, said study lead researcher Bertrand Lefebvre, a National Center for Scientific Research research researcher uh, at the Laboratory of Geology in Lyon in France. Now, from the 1850s to around the 1950s, most researchers believed that they were basically normal echidnoderms and that the appendage was probably something similar to the stem of uh, a kind of modern echidnoderm known as sea lilies. 
And so regular um, echinoderms or echinoderms, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, I often apologize for my pronunciations. I uh, try my best, (laughs) but obviously uh, it's hard sometimes. Um, And so they have internal skeletons with mineralized calcitic plates and a water vascular system that helps them to move and breathe. And so um, they have this sort of, you know, that that's what tends to get preserved as the uh, fossil. Now, of course, not all of them have it. Uh, so the skeleton is greatly reduced in sea cucumbers, uh, which is why they're, you know, a lot more squishy than other members of the family. But they're, it's still in there to make them uh, still part of the family. But anyways, uh, most of these echinoderms have five rayed symmetry, and they are closely related to acorn acorn worms, who are also invertebrates, and to invertebrates. And so these three families make up the group known as the deuterostomia. And so in the early 60s, things began to change. A Belgian paleontologist, Georges Ubags, found that the appendages, the, the appendage was actually more similar to the feeding arm of a starfish than the stem of a sea lily. In the late 60s, British paleontologists Richard Jeffries posited that they were actually a missing link between echinoderms and chordates with the appendage housing a primitive backbone called a notochord. In the 2000s, yet another British paleontologist, Andrew Smith, suggested that they were instead the missing link between echinoderms and acorn worms. And of course, the new fossil can now settle this debate. And so um, before we do that, though, I do want to talk about that sort of, I use the term, but I feel like I really shouldn't, uh, which is, of course, missing link, um, because people tend to use that very much as a sort of got you kind of thing a lot of times. And, you know, there are gaps in the fossil record, obviously gaps in our understanding of evolution, but there is never any kind of true missing link between things that everything is always a link to the next thing. And sometimes we have gaps, but you know, that idea of a missing link, that's a aha thing is kind of a misnomer. So I always like to be sure to talk about that because I know that that's a term that is used in a popular way that is not necessarily Uh, the way that it should be used. But anyways, getting back to uh, styliforans, it turns out they were composed of two parts, which we did kind of know. Uh, The flat body actually contains intestines, and the appendage actually has a water vascular system that would have helped the animal to move and feed. And so basically, it's it's closest to what Eubogs had suggested. And so they also believe that because they didn't have five-rayed symmetry, that they were actually an advanced echinoderm, echinoderm, which had lost that symmetry. So they weren't on the base of the echinoderm or echinoderm um, branch, but they were a little bit further up, had time to have actually developed and then lost that symmetry. This discovery is of particular importance because it brings to an end a 150-year-old debate about the position of these bizarre-looking fossils in the Tree of Life, 
Lefebvre said. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, again, kind of a, you know, fun fact rather than something life shattering, but you know, hey, um, so let's move on to one more sort of just bizarre scientific mystery that may have finally been solved. And so uh, this is the probable origin of so-called fairy circles. Now, I think I've talked about these before, um, but basically what they are is they're areas of barren land within uh, grasslands that are kind of in uh, sort of desert areas. And so basically, if you look at the uh, if you look at the landscape from the air, from like a drone or from an airplane, it basically looks like the plane is polka dotted and they have long puzzled scientists. Some have suggested that they mark areas of termite activity and nests. Some have suggested that it's the result of vegetation competing for scarce resources. Some have suggested it's a combination of both. Um, <laughs> and so a new theory suggests that the culprit is actually not a living thing at all. Neither the uh, termites nor the vegetation having anything to do with it in the abstract, but rather weather or more precisely weathering caused by heavy rainfall and quick evaporation. So study researcher Stefan Getzen of the University of Göttingen in Germany uh, notes that while termites sometimes create nests in these barren patches, there is no evidence that they are actually creating them. The vegetation gaps caused by harvester termites are only about half the size of the fairy circles and much less ordered, Getson said in a statement. Instead, it turns out that when you excavate inside one of these areas, you find a lot of clay and compacted soils. The researchers suggest that heavy rains cause the clay to seep into the areas around the soil and then they create a crust as the area rapidly dries out because these circles are actually found in uh, very arid regions. They're actually only found in two different regions. They're found in uh, desert, sort of desert ar arid regions of Namibia, Namibia, excuse me, and uh, in Australia. And so both of these places reach very high levels of heat and thus rapid evaporation can happen of any rainwater. And so what then happens is that this crust is formed and it makes it impossible for new plants to grow in the area because they can't, they literally can't physically push through this crust to get into the sun. And so the team actually sent drones out to search for such rings in the Namibian uh, desert area. And they actually found that there are actually different kinds. And so um, in the Namibian desert, there's generally one kind that people know the most, which is this traditional, almost hexagonal uh, pattern, which is seen in you know most of the pictures of these things. But they actually also found larger oval patches in certain drainage areas, and even some mega circles more than 65 feet in diameter which definitely is not being caused by termites. Uh, and so they suspect that it's just the right combination of uh, homogeneous soil 
one or two species of plants that have a particular growth cycle and, you know, need and a very particular cycle of rain and evaporation that creates the circles. And of course, it also kind of explains why they're only found in uh, these two places and not all over the world. So um, very cool to really figure out, uh, hopefully, exactly how this really weird uh, pattern of uh, vegetation, why it's actually happening, because um, that's another thing that people have been really wondering about over the years. Okay, so let us take a moment to do some show promos and some uh, PSAs, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, a new discovery of an ancient tattooing tool. So do stay tuned for that. Hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, look out! Look out! <laughs> Oh. oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique. Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife. 8 to 10 Saturday nights. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. 
But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. CDC estimates that one in six Americans gets food poisoning each year. Some germs, like listeria, can be deadly for certain people. It targets older adults, people with weakened immune systems, and pregnant women and their newborns. People with listeria infection usually require hospital care, and about one in five who are infected die or miscarry. Know your risk of listeria food poisoning. If you're 65 or older, have a weakened immune system, or are pregnant, you must be especially careful when selecting, preparing, and storing foods. Heat hot dogs and deli meats until steaming hot. Do not consume raw, unpasteurized milk or soft cheeses made from it. And be aware that soft cheeses made from pasteurized milk have also been associated with listeria infections and outbreaks. Learn more about how to prevent listeria food poisoning at cdc.gov slash vital signs. And we are back. Okay, so like I said, we are going to talk about ancient tattooing. Now, people all across the world, uh, since practically the dawn of humanity, have practiced tattooing. Before they did tattooing, they would actually paint their bodies with uh, red ochre and things like that. So we've basically always been uh, trying to do things to uh, sort of vary the way that our bodies look in a myriad of ways. And so, for instance, uh, Otzi, the uh, Iceman who was found in the Alps, uh, he had several tattoos. Uh, they were basically in all, all along his body. Uh, bog bodies that had been recovered from peat bogs, those often have uh, tattoos. A lot of Celtic and Germanic peoples uh, that are found in those bogs had tattoos. Um, ancient Egyptians, actually the oldest example that we have of someone who has a tattoo is, and it's almost a tie, but she actually comes in as slightly older than Otzi, um, is that there is a female mummy from ancient Egypt that actually has tattoos. And um, so we know that tattooing has a very rich and varied history basically all over the world. There was a lot of tattooing going on in Asia as well, just everywhere. And um, so, yeah, so it's no surprise that an object was recently rediscovered in a museum, uh, which is a 2000 year old tool for tattooing. The tool uh, consists of two prickly pear cactus spines attached to a stick from a skunk bush sumac. Uh, and it's basically attached with yucca leaf strips as the binding material. And as you can probably tell if you're familiar with the area, this is actually from the uh, American Southwest. And in fact, it is the oldest tool found for tattooing so far in the Western United States. 
and would have belonged to a member of the ancestral Pueblo people uh, during the Basket Maker II period in what is now uh, southeastern Utah. So I guess it's more just true west. It's not quite southwest. Um, and so the ancient Pueblo lived in the area from around 500 BCE to around 500 CE. And what's really interesting about this is that the discovery actually pushes back the known use of tattooing in the area more than a thousand years, according to study lead researcher Andrew Gilreath Brown, who is a doctoral student of anthropology at Washington State University and the one who rediscovered the artifact. Tattooing by prehistoric people in the Southwest is not talked about much because there has not ever been any direct evidence to substantiate it, uh, Gilreath Brown said in a statement. It is the Southwest. I was right. <laughs> it's what I associate with the Southwest as well. Um, so this tattoo tool provides us information about past Southwestern culture we did not know before. And so the object is just under four inches long, and it was discovered by Gilreath Brown while he was taking an inventory of artifacts that had been languishing in storage for almost 50 years at the university. Now, this is an important find because researchers have never before found either tattoos on ancient remains in the American Southwest, and they don't have any textu textual support for tattooing in these more ancient times. Um, not really ancient times, but in these, uh, you know, historic times. And so they've actually only been able to discover other tools uh, like this one. And so those were previously found in what is now Arizona and New Mexico, and they date from 1100 and 1280 CE, respectively. And so, again, the new tool, which dates to between 79 and 130 CE, pushes it back rather dramatically. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, you see a picture of, the ob of this object and you're like, oh, yeah, of course that's for tattooing. Um, so it was very obvious. Uh, and so um, Gilreath Brown notes that the residue staining the tattoo pigments on the tip was what immediately piqued my interest as being possibly a tattoo tool. Um, and so then he actually analyzed the needles, uh, including with a scanning electron microscope. And um, what I love is that he even did a bit of experimental archaeology. And so what he did was that he made a replica of the tool and took some pigskin, uh, what he got, which he got at the grocery store, and he recreated it um, to show that it really would work. And so the pigment uh, contained carbon, most likely, uh, which is a common element in body painting and tattooing. And so we don't have any direct evidence, again, uh, for how the Pueblo uh, people would have used tattooing. Um, but ethnographic research from the 1930s of tribes still living in the Southwest showed that, for instance, in some tribes, women were given tattoos when they reached puberty and entered adulthood. For other tribes, tattoos were used uh, as a way to help the soul of the dead to reach the ancestral realm. And so the discovery of the tattoo tool, quote, 
has a great significance for understanding how people managed relationships and how status may have been marked on people in the past during a time when population densities were increasing in the Southwest, uh, Gilreath Brown noted. And of course, while we don't know exactly why they would have done it, it connects them very closely with other populations all over the world, including our own. And so, uh, for instance, I have two tattoos. Um, both of them are extremely important to me, have deep meaning. Now, of course, people don't have to do that these days, but I personally like having that kind of connection to the past. Uh, my tattoos are markers of what I think are important uh, reminders about my personal being and personal connections. And so, yeah, I think it's really cool. Um, tattooing is definitely something that I think has become really sort of popular and, uh, you know, everyone's sort of doing it these days. Um, but it's important sometimes I think to remember that this is something that humans have been doing forever and it connects you to a long and just storied history of humans doing this sort of thing together. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really cool. Okay, so let's move on now. And let's talk about kind of an odd story. Um, but, you know, whenever these sorts of things pop up, I like to talk about them because, you know, there can be a lot of misinformation and worry about things. And so um, you may have heard that a 12-year-old uh, from Tennessee who uh, he's now 14, um, but that he created a nuclear fusion device uh, in uh, what has been called his playroom. And so the Open Source Fuser Research Consortium recognized Jackson Oswalt's achievement last month. And it turns out he was actually inspired by the story of Taylor Wilson, who at 14 had built one in his garage uh, back in 2008. And basically, Oswald said, I can do better. Um, <laughs> and uh, so this achievement has made him the youngest person uh, now that he has taken the title from Wilson. Uh, but, you know, Wilson did get to meet President Obama out of it. So uh, he might still win. <laughs> uh, and so now at 24, he is actually researching ways to make nuclear fusion more efficient. So uh, Taylor Wilson is still very much interested in nuclear fusion. And so it may sound kind of crazy for kids to be building fusion reactors at home, um, but like the uranium ore story last week, it's much less dangerous than it seems at first glance. For instance, fusion involves light atoms being squished together, basically, to form heavier atoms. Uh, and so right now, you not only the only way to do this is actually to put a lot of energy into the system. This is unlike nuclear fission, which breaks apart heavy particles such as uranium, uh, which produces more energy than the initial intake, which is how you can get things like explosions. And so nuclear fission produces uh, safe, clean energy uh, for the most part, um, barring an occasional mishap. And yes, it may seem incredibly bad, but those are still 
small mishaps. Uh, Despite what a lot of people uh, like to think about nuclear energy, it is actually way safer than uh, pretty much any other energy source we use besides uh, sort of wind and um, and, uh, solar, which are, you know, by current technology, can't actually do everything um, for us. And so if we wanted to get rid of coal and oil quickly, uh, nuclear reactors would be a great way to help with that. But of course, uh, there is a lot of uh, nimbyism about that. People don't want them in their backyard. And um, because people have been scaremongering about them for so long, uh, the Um, ability to do research into creating bigger and better ones uh, has been stunted. And um, yeah, I could get on my soapbox about that. But let's get back to uh, young Mr. Oswald. And so uh, apparently, there's actually quite a few hobbyists out there who do this. So um, the people who certified his, um, his fusion reactor are actually a group of uh, physicists and hobbyists who are all doing this. And so, yeah, it's crazy. Um, Now, fusion reactors, again, don't have the ability to be used as bombs. Uh, They're generally, and generally these sorts of reactors don't actually even admit dangerous levels of radiation because the amount of fusion produced is so small. Uh, And of course, you know, proper shielding is needed to be absolutely safe. But again, these are very, you know, small scale operations generally that, you know, kids and other people are making in their, you know, uh, at home. And so the process itself uses strong magnets to suspend isotopes of hydrogen gas, uh, like for instance, deuterium in a vacuum. Energy on a huge scale is then pumped into the chamber in order to superheat the atoms until they fuse into helium. And so the process releases neutrons, which are required to be detected before a reactor can be certified as actually producing fusion. And so according to the Guardian, Oswald's machine required 50,000 volts of electricity and $10,000 of equipment. So obviously this is not actually a hobby for the everyday person. But it is still a neat thing to know that even motivated children can produce really cool and advanced scientific devices. Uh, Oswald is currently working on a new model using the spherical tokamak method, uh, which actually traps energy differently than his original model. He also has plans to become a nuclear physicist and hopes to one day be the one who actually breaks the uh, barrier and makes uh, fusion actually be a energy creator rather than just a giant energy sink. I realized that certain things that I thought were impossible for someone my age aren't impossible, he said. Kids make up a large part of the population and some of them have great ideas. And if they can't make those ideas a reality, it's a waste. And I think that that's the really important message of all of this is that, you know, the only reason that this young man could make this amazing thing is because he had access to resources. You know, he had parents who were both really supportive 
and had a lot of disposable income. Um, and of course, he's a, you know, adorable, young, uh, white child. And, um, you know, you hope that that doesn't mean anything. But unfortunately, we we've known for a long time in this country that it does mean something. And I think that the thing that this really makes me think of is how much more we could do to support young children in their hopes and dreams and their interest in technology who don't have this kind of ready access to just enormous amounts of money and huge amounts of support from loving parents. Um, and I don't have an answer for that, but I think that it's important that we keep thinking about it um, because as trite as it is, you know, children really are the future. Um, and it's good if we start them early sort of working on making the future a better place. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's move on now and talk about something that's less exciting um, and something that's one of those kind of, yeah, I figured that's pretty much how it is, um, which is that there is new research to uh, suggest that sleeping in on the weekends uh, won't actually make up for sleep lost during the week and actually might even be worse for you. <laughs> The take-home message is basically that you can't make up for abusing your sleeping clock by sleeping a few more hours on the weekend, said Paul Shaw, a neuroscientist at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, who was not involved in the study. It's not as simple as saying, oh, if I sleep in on the weekends, I'll be better. Now, according to the latest data available uh, from the CDC, which is from 2014, uh, they found that roughly 35% of American adults reported sleeping less than the recommended seven hours per night. And so the weekend might seem like a great place to make up some of that deficit, but researchers were skeptical that this would necessarily be helpful. And so Christopher Deppner a sleep physiologist at the University of Colorado Boulder and his colleagues decided to test the theory with young adults in their mid-20s, a group that is, of course, notorious for not getting enough sleep. Um, and so three groups of subjects were put through different sleep regimes uh, for around two weeks. One group slept around eight hours every night, a second five hours, and a third five hours on weeknights, but as much as they wanted on weekends. And so those allowed to sleep in on the weekends typically stayed up until midnight or 1am on Friday and Saturday nights and slept in until 11 or noon. But the thing is that they also stayed up late on Sunday nights, which meant that they then had to get up at their normal time to, you know, go to their actual job or whatever. And so uh, they only got around 1.1 extra hours uh, than they would have otherwise given the regular sleep schedule. Now, here's where things get weird. When compared to the group that only got five hours of sleep, the researchers found that um, this isn't so weird. This is pretty expected. Both groups actually ended up gaining a little bit of weight uh, because they ended up snacking more because uh, they were basically up later and their bodies were like, oh, well, we've been up for a while and we haven't had anything to eat, so we should eat something. Um, but here's where it really gets weird. It turns out that when looking at insulin sensitivity and liver and muscle cell decline, they found that those who had slept more on the weekends actually fared worse. 
they found that their insulin sensitivity dropped by approximately 27% compared to 13% in the group that simply got too little sleep. This group was also the only group to show declines in liver and muscle cells, both of which are important for food digestion. That was very unexpected, Debner said. Uh, and so cycling between sleepless weeks and recovery weekends uh, could actually, quote, have some negative health consequences in and of itself. Now, of course, as with many such studies, this isn't a definitive result. Uh, Peter Liu, a sleep endocrinologist at UCLA, notes that in patients that he's studied who have chronic sleep deprivation, he's actually seen improvement in insulin sensitivity for those who are able to catch an extra few hours of sleep. Um, and so, of course, the real takeaway, which is, of course, the hardest advice of all is to get enough sleep regularly and to maintain a sleep schedule that is consistent across the entire week. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing that nobody wants to hear, um, which is, you know, just get enough sleep to begin with. And uh, so, yeah, that's unfortunately not something that people necessarily want to hear, but it is an important takeaway. All right. So, Here's a story that is a little bit upsetting, uh, not for any real, like, it's not gross, uh, nothing's going wrong per se, but it's, it's another one of those stories where science realizes that, whoops, something we thought was like totally solid and was like a real thing turns out to be, again, more complicated than we thought. And unfortunately, it's also another part of or another sort of thing uh, from forensic science that may need to have a bit of reevaluation. Now, of course, we've heard tales over the last few years of studies that were once considered a, as valid and scientific, found to be either less than scientific or downright deceptive. Um, bite mark identification is kind of the poster child uh, for this pseudo, sort of pseudoscience that was once thought to be scientific and uh, good forensics. Uh, hair sample comparison is another one. And now it turns out that researchers have suggested that even one that we thought couldn't be disputed, DNA evidence might also be fallible. New research suggests that a 10-second handshake could transfer a person's DNA onto another person who can then leave that original DNA on an object that the owner of that original DNA never touched. In handshaking experiments, people who had never touched a knife became the major source of DNA on that knife around 7% of the time, according to forensic scientist Cynthia Kale, who reported these findings at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences uh, this past month. And a separate study by Leanne uh, Riser, a forensic anthropologist at the University of Indianapolis, um, at the time that the research was done, the last person to touch an object, such as a communal pitcher, was often not the person whose DNA was found to be the most prominent on that object. And so again, this suggests the possibility that there could be mistakes in identification at crime scenes and that investigators need to be careful to look for possible accidental transfers. Now, of course, it's not a sudden, it's not a need to suddenly throw out a large amount of forensic evidence, but it does suggest that there is a greater level of uncertainty, even though it's small. 
Now, the experiment by Riser was actually particularly interesting. Four students were asked to sit around a table and pour beverages from a communal pitcher. Other studies, other students were in the room and free to leave, talk, move around, such as my, people might in a restaurant. Each person at the table handled the pitcher and a plastic cup. Researchers then swabbed the pitcher handle, the cups, and the students' hands for DNA. They found that not only was there DNA from the four students on the pitcher handle and on each other's cups, there was also DNA from other students in the room, despite the fact that they had had no direct contact with the objects. It suggested that they may have been shed, shedding DNA through tiny droplets of moisture, uh, for instance, from talking or coughing or sneezing. They also found that they were unable to pinpoint who had last touched the pitcher based on the DNA evidence. And so it actually might be in part because people shed DNA at different rates, suggests Prince. Of course, as with most of these experiences or experiments, more research is needed to figure out exactly what is going on and how we deal with it moving forward. But again, this isn't suggesting that all uh, DNA evidence is completely and utterly, you know, not useful. It's just that we have to look at it a little bit differently now. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. So please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.